Good afternoon, and welcome to Spokane Public Radio's Northwest Arts Review, a half hour exploring the people, places, and events forming the rich arts tapestry we enjoy here in the Inland Northwest and our wider Intermountain Northwest region. I'm Jim Tavenin, pleased to be your guide on this journey. Today, Chris Bassini has a conversation with author Kate Lebo, who, among her many other accomplishments, co-hosts the popular regional pie and whiskey events. Gonzaga University music student Henry Mauser plays some delightfully gentle music by Domenico Scarlatti for us. And Dan Webster assesses a now-streaming 2019 film he managed to miss the first time around. And I'll investigate the traditional Scandinavian musical meditation called Luflurpa with one of its most enthusiastic proponents, Bjorn Ysterde. This is Northwest Arts Review. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Chris Massini. My guest today is essayist, poet, and pie lady, Kate Lebo. She's the author of the cookbook Pie School and the poetry chapbook Seven Prayers to Kathy McMorris Rogers, and co-editor with Samuel Ligon of Pie and Whiskey, writers under the influence of butter and booze, as well as co-host of the popular Pie and Whiskey events. Kate Lebo's new book is The Book of Difficult Fruit, Arguments for the Tart, Tender, and Unruly with Recipes. She'll be hosting a multi-bookstore virtual release extravaganza with Auntie's Third Place Books, Village Books, and Browsers Books on Monday, April 5th at 6 p.m. And she joins me now to talk about the new book. Hi, Kate. Thanks Hi, Chris. for talking with me. Oh, it's good to be here. So uh, the Book of Difficult Fruit is one of those books that's hard to sort of sum up really neatly or characterize. It's a collection of essays. I barely remember what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think the word meditations is a good way to describe it because each chapter is inspired by a different fruit. And fruit is used uh, generously here. They're not all necessarily um fruits. They're not all necessarily fruits. No. <laughs> And it's an abecedarian, so each chapter is a letter of the alphabet, which also creates some problems in terms of fruits. But exactly. it's a really fun. So I guess how did you sort of conceive the project of this book? And, you know, did that um, alphabetical, did that just evolve as a convenient way to put it together? Or how did it come together? I mean, yes. <laughs> um, th- so many influences came to bear on how I figured out how to write this book. I mean, one of the ways I think about it is that I've long felt like I've led this kind of bifurcated creative life of um, being a baker on one hand and being a writer on the other. And in this book, I was really trying to join both of those creative impulses um, and borrow from kind of genre elements of um, the different books that belong mm. to those creative impulses. Um, and a thing that I love about the Abbasidarian form is the way that it kind of fools you into thinking that it's complete, hmm. um, that you have represented everything, the way the encyclopedia gives you the impression that everything under the sun is covered within its pages. Of course, it's not. Of yeah. course, encyclopedias are biased no matter what they try to do. They have to leave stuff out. So I wanted to fool around with that, knowing that I wanted to present you know, literal, factual information about these real fruits, while also tying them to very subjective experiences in my life. 
Yeah, well, reading it really, it feels like just having a fun conversation with like a really smart, really interesting person like yourself, because it's it's very freewheeling in its associations of like, you'll be talking about how to prepare a fruit and then you'll dip into, you know, childhood memories or natural history. And it's just really fun to just go with you wherever you want to take yourself. And I think a good example of that is the chapter on huckleberries, which folks in Spokane and in the Northwest, I think, will really enjoy, where you bring in the Salish language and sort of compare Salish with the huckleberry. So I wonder if you could read a little bit from that chapter for us. Sure, I would love to. So this is on page 104 for anyone out there with a copy of the book yet. Um, And in this, I'm going to speak a couple of the words of the Salish language that Leray Wiley from the Salish School taught me. Um, I'm probably not going to get it exactly right. That's okay. um, But I'm going to say it in the spirit of learning. Great. Okay. (laughs) When I ask Leray to teach me how to say huckleberry in Salish, she says, close your eyes. I'm going to say the word and you're going to listen. Then say it back to me. I am hard of hearing. In conversation, if I can see a face, I can hear better. With my eyes closed, without facial expression or the speech of eye contact, I'm afraid I'll mishear. But it's not like that. Instead, with my eyes closed, the buzz of the cafe fades, and I tune into Leray's voice, willing myself to feel comfortable in this posture of reception. Her voice is the only thing. She's saying, st'ashk, st'ashk, st'ashk. To catch the sounds, I imagine they are topography. This one has a steep incline, a sharp peak, then a shallow descent with a quick hitch up at the end. Now you, Leray says. I fumble through, and she says, good, try again. This is one of the methods she and her teachers are using to revive Salish, repeating words, playing games with them, as you would with any child, until the words lodge themselves next to English. It is hard for me to get the sounds right. I'm embarrassed by this. I wonder if this tiny shame is a boundary I have momentarily crossed, if I've moved from a place where I am comfortable and fluent into a place where I am an outsider and strange, possibly suspect, definitely illiterate, and, in the old-fashioned sense, dumb. She says it again. Stashk. I try to master the air between st, which sounds the way an English speaker would expect, and tch, which sounds like ash. Then the front of the throat, k, Sound of We are children in the language, she says. We are learning and we will get better. Mistakes are part of that and nothing to be ashamed of. In the car, leaving our interview, I try to say the word again and I can't. It's gone. I can't even recall how it begins. But I can remember how to say medicine. Mrimsten. A little trip on the R, so you skip directly from M to R to the EM sound, then a new syllable, familiar this time, STIN. When trying to pronounce Salish, English speakers might imagine an I in there, STIN, but the sound is shorter, acutely angled from the T to the N, not the full I, like PIN, sound. I imagine this is a hollow my tongue steps over. When I can't remember the Salish word for huckleberry, I say the Salish word for medicine. That was Kate Lebo reading from her new book, The Book of Difficult Fruit, from her chapter about huckleberries. I'm curious, did you go into any of these essays sort of knowing what you wanted to cover? Like, oh, when I'm when I'm writing 
this Huckleberry chapter, I know I want to talk about language. Or sure. was it just a process of, like you said, playful discovery? It depends. I mean, I think with Huckleberry, one of the things I went into it wanting to understand was how a food that's sacred to the tribes in our area is also incredibly precious mm. to descendants of colonizers, to the new newer immigrants to this area. And how do I write an essay that includes all of those, you know, ways that the huckleberry is meaningful that doesn't kind of elide or cover up any of the conflict within that, but also, you know, kind of shows how we as a mixed community share this fruit in common. I also um, wanted to get, you know, information from the USDA, the U.S. Forest Service, um, the way the government, U.S. government has written about huckleberries, the way missionaries have written about um, Native traditions of picking huckleberries. And I wanted to talk to our Native community and yeah. get more Indigenous ways of knowing um, within that piece as well. Weaving those all together were really important to me. Well, you know, another really fun aspect of this book is there's recipes at the end of every chapter, which you also tried and experimented with. And I imagine there's many, many recipes that didn't make it into the book that you tried. So, you know, talk about developing those recipes for these things that you had no experience with. So um, I'm thinking of Medler, which you talk about Shakespeare a lot because it's sort of name checked in some Shakespeare plays. But um, it's a really strange fruit in that you have to sort of let it rot before you can do anything with it. And then you're kind of confused about what to do with it. So how did you come up with those um, recipes? Well, that was a combination of um, actually going online, seeing what, you know, Dr. Google would tell me. So we all do, just Google things, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Google can deliver all sorts of information that's useful, but it can't really deliver knowledge or practice. What I knew from Google was this was an old fruit. Most of us have lost any sort of familiarity with it or practice with it. And I could possibly make jelly from it or Mm -hmm. jam. I could possibly eat it fresh. Why not? Um, what I ended up doing, I went up to Quillasasket Farm, um, where my mentor, Laura Lee Misterly, lives. And she is just a consummate um, explorer of foods. She's playing around all the time. And together, I mean, she started to think of, like, what are some food forms that we could try to shove this fruit into and see if it works? <laughs> let's try ice cream. Let's try ketchup. Let's try jam. Let's try uh, bitters. Let's try uh, liqueur, all of that. So we just thought tried of, it. yeah, a food yeah. form, tried it. None of them worked. (laughs) The only thing that worked, worked so well. It it became such a reward for all of that. Which was the jelly. That was the jelly. And what was amazing was, I mean, usually what's so delicious about jelly is, you know, taking kind of the essence of the fruit, the juice, and finding a way to give it a solid form so Mm. that you you can lump it on your cheese or on your bread or whatever (laughs) you want to do with it and enjoy it. In this case, I mean, meddlers aren't really juicy. You have to kind of make a decoction of them. You have to Mm. boil the hell Mm. out of them Um, and take that water and then gel that. And it makes this it makes this delicious kind of taste of fall. I mean, if you you know that scent when you go from a um, cold outside to a warm inside and you get that kind of rush of rotting, sweet, rotting leaves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's delicious. (laughs) I'm talking with Kate Lebo. She's the author of The Book of Difficult Fruit, 
Arguments for the Tart, Tender, and Unruly with Recipes. And you're hosting a virtual event with Auntie's Bookstore here in Spokane, Third Place Books in Seattle, Village Books in Bellingham, and Browser's Bookstore in Olympia, which just seems like such an efficient way to do a regional book tour. I mean, why not? All we have to do it all event. online anyway. Yeah. Let's just have a party across the state. Yeah, so that's on April 5th. Um, and so what can people expect from that big, giant virtual party? Oh, that's going to be so fun. So uh, one of the things that they can expect if they pre-order the book from any of these bookstores, if they're the first 20, they get a, a vanilla bean from me. And these oh. beans smell so delicious. I have a pile of them on my desk right now. <laughs> I feel like a vanillionaire. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, the event itself is going to be super fun. Kim Adonisio, the poet, is going to help me launch this book. She also has a new book out right now called Now We're Getting Somewhere. Okay. So she'll read some poems from that. Um, and then I will read uh, you know, some excellent essay from this book. <laughs> uh, we won't go on too long. We'll go on just long enough. There'll be a Q&A. Um, and I will also miss all you people that I would have loved to have seen in person at an actual party were it not COVID days. Yeah. Well, my guest has been Kate Lebo. Her new book is The Book of Difficult Fruit, Arguments for the Tart, Tender, and Unruly with Recipes. Out April 5th from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. You can find more information about her virtual release party at auntiesbooks.com. Kate, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. Here at KPBX, we take some pride in our inclusion of younger musicians in the mix of what we present from our performance space. We have an ongoing relationship with the Eastern Washington University Music Department in which Dr. Jody Graves brings piano and other music major students by each second Tuesday of the month for solo and collaborative on-air performance. Beginning next week, we will welcome Judith Shefflin's students from Whitworth University to play on the piano bench the first Tuesday of the month for the balance of the school year. And just last week, we recorded the recital program of another fine young pianist, Henry Mauser, a student of Greg Presley at Gonzaga University. From that session, here is Henry's performance of a well-known sonata by Domenico Scarlatti.
The playing of student musicians like Henry Mauser is a regular feature of our Piano Bench programs Tuesdays at 11 on KPBX 91.1. Also, streaming from SpokanePublicRadio.org and available as From the Studio podcasts from there as well. With The Gentleman, director Guy Ritchie returns to a film genre he knows best, says Dan Webster in this review. Anymore, reading the headlines gives me a headache. Maybe this was always the case, I can't say. But these days, the parade of bad news seems to affect me a lot more than it once did. Supermarket shootings, natural disasters, the ongoing effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, all underscored by the political polarization that seems to get worse every time someone repeats the great lie. It can feel overwhelming. That's why instead of an ibuprofen tablet or a stiff drink, and often after I've written a check in the name of some charity I find worthy, I reach for my TV remote and look for a respite, temporary as it might be. And that's how I came to stream Guy Ritchie's 2019 film, The Gentleman. How I missed the film when it first came out, I can't say. Maybe it's because it opened around here in late January of 2020, and this being a time when the first news regarding the coming pandemic was breaking, I had better things to do. More likely, it was because Richie's previous few films, among them the 2019 live-action version of Aladdin and 2017's King Arthur Legend of the Sword, had underwhelmed me. This time, however, I was in the mood to revisit the feel of Richie's past hits, most especially the two that earned him his early fame, 1998's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and 2000's Snatch, both of which he wrote and directed. The 1998 film, as you recall, is a fanciful, offbeat, at times humorous and often gleefully violent look at London mob life. The wild storyline, which involves a rigged card game, a debt of 500,000 English pounds, a wild heist and a pair of antique shotguns, jump-started the careers of both Vinnie Jones and Jason Statham. Snatch is much the same, with a MacGuffin being an 86-carat diamond. Around that stolen gym, Richie gives us a group of Irish travelers, a number of boxing matches, one crisscross after the next, and an improbably entertaining performance by Brad Pitt in which he speaks a mostly unintelligible jabber that is supposed to pass for a traveler's brogue. And now we have The Gentleman, another complex, plotted exercise in criminal action, this one starring Matthew McConaughey as a cannabis maven named Mickey Pearson. An American, obviously, McConaughey trying to pull off an English accent would have made Kevin Costner's Robin Hood look good. Mickey wants to retire, and so is selling his illegal enterprise for the sum of $400 million. It's when Mickey gives his sales pitch that we discover the secret to his success. He's co-opted a number of the land-rich, money-poor English nobility into allowing him to grow his plants on or under their estates. Things go bad suddenly when thieves, a group of amateur fighters who call themselves the toddlers, rob one of Mickey's operations, seemingly lowering the value of his business. Matters get even worse when an upstart Chinese gangster named Dry Eye, played by Henry Golding, attempts to intimidate Mickey into selling to him. Then a tabloid publisher, played by Eddie Marzan, hires a private eye named Fletcher, played by Hugh Grant, to investigate Mickey. Meanwhile, some Russian hoods target Mickey in revenge for the actions of his conciliary, Raymond, played by Charlie Hunnam. Throughout all this, with its many twists and turns, Richie proceeds, as is his way, breathlessly. 
Yet in the end, it all ties together, bearing that familiar Richie tone that blends dark humor with casual violence. As in his past films, the capable acting of all involved, from McConaughey, Hunnaman Golding, to Michelle Dockery as Mickey's toughest Flint wife, Colin Farrell as the coach of the toddlers, and especially Grant, virtually unrecognizable as the sleazy Fletcher, is the key that holds everything together. Richie is never going to be considered a great film director, not anyway in the same sense as Stanley Kubrick, John Ford, Martin Scorsese, or Francis Ford Coppola. But when it comes to the kind of film he does best, few can match him. That judgment, of course, is personal opinion, and it's one that not everyone shares. Reviewer Katie Walsh, for example, unkindly described Richie's The Gentleman as, quote, blinkered by its outdated and often offensive alpha male perspective, unquote. I might agree. If Richie were attempting to make heroes out of Mickey and his pals, yet clearly he isn't. He's chronicling the lives of outlawed dummies. In the end, no one should take a Richie film too seriously. Should I ever read that sentiment expressed in a headline, it just might cure my headache. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm Dan Webster. Dan Webster writes about movies and more for Spokane7.com and hosts Spokane Public Radio's Movies 101, heard Friday evenings at 6.30 here on KPBX, which also, it happens, is the station bringing you this program, Northwest Arts Review. Politics, COVID, global warming. It's enough to raise blood pressure, cause digestive disorders, even lead to hair loss, and make for a general malaise pervading one's life. Temptation to deal with all this chemically is always there, but consider this alternative, the calming sound and movement techniques of the venerable Scandinavian institution of Luflurpa. Practitioners think of it as a sound sauna, a way to melt away stressful influences. To explain, we've invited noted Luflurpist Bjorn Yesterde. Greetings, Bjorn. How does Luflurpa work? Well, it's like the sauna, but instead of a little hot room and then out to the snowbank, we do it all inside with the music doing the hot and cold for us. So start with your feet apart and arms up and out. Think of making an X with your body. As the music gets louder, stretch out, out, out until you can stretch no more. Then as the music explodes, we make the crazy dance with all the moving and shaking and shaking and moving like you just jumped in the snowbank. Then we do it again. Stretch, 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 and shake, shake, shake. Now you try it. Stretch, stretch, and shake, 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 shake. One more time. Well, thank you, Bjorn. I'm sure you'll feel better soon. And I'm sure our listeners are really appreciative now knowing about Luflurpa. It's like a sound sauna. All right, Bjorn, try lying on the floor for a while. And finally... A poem for April Fool's Day, written in 1900 by Will Coles. Talk about your Christmases, Fourth of Julys, and circuses. 
They ain't in it for the real fun that's to be had on April 1. Even Halloween is very tame to April 1st, that is, if you're game. I think that April 1st must be Independence Day for kids like me, when we can play all sorts of jokes and not be punished by our folks. Though Pa, he says in a threatening way, Bill, no nonsense from you today. When Jim's pant legs are found sewed up, when Ma of coffee takes a sup and finds the sugar tastes like salt, I say, quite innocent, taint my fault. They frown and say, half scold, half laugh, this here is some of Willie's chaff. The teacher has her troubles, too. You know what mischievous boys can do. But when I hollered, April fool, she kept me in long after school. I didn't care much, for I knew she wasn't game, like me or you. Say, you look as though you might know how a boy feeled at night, as though a big day's work was done, and how he'd fooled them all, except one. For Pa, he said to me one side, Don't you fool me or I'll tan your hide. April Fools, a poem by Will Coles, written in 1900. Thanks for listening to Northwest Arts Review for April 1st. I'm Jim Tavenin. Help today came from Chris Massini. Thanks as well to Kate Lebo, Dan Webster, Henry Mauser, and of course, Bjorn Yesterde. We go out with a Finnish fiddle tune. Please join us again next week for another Northwest Arts Review on Spokane Public Radio.